Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. So we had a guy show up at our, our church last week and uh, was a guest, uh, found us online, and asked, uh, I asked him how did he find our church, and he said he was looking for Reformed Baptist Church, and found us, went to our website, looked around, came to our church and visited. Uh, bright young kid, um, excited to have him visit, hope he comes back. If he doesn't, won't be offended. So um, it made me think, are we a Reformed church? Right? We, we hold to the Baptist faith and message, uh, 2000, which is our statement of faith. It is pretty Reformed-ish, and it has Reformed roots and history. has Reformed language in it. Um, when we say Reformed, typically what we would mean by that phrase is uh, things like tulip, doctrines of grace, the solas. We're, we're talking about uh, reformed soteriology more than anything. How is, a, how is a person saved? What does it mean for God to have grace uh, on his people? Churches that follow after the doctrine of the Reformation. Sure. Reformed church, yeah. And, and some, some may follow the doctrine of the Reformation historically, and they have pieces of it. And I think the Baptist faith and message is actually an example of that, right? where it borrows language, it has history with the Reformation, but it's not necessarily... It, 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 it is a great statement of faith for the big umbrella of the SBC. Yeah, and it does It stops... It kind of... Uh, it includes people who follow Reformed soteriology, that would be the doctrine of salvation, and people who push back against Reformed soteriology. Right. So we've had people come to our church because they're looking for something more Reformed. We've had people come to our church because they're looking for something less um, heavy-handed, dogmatically Reformed. Yeah. So, you know, let that be what it is for right now. Um, Probably one of the biggest hiccups when it comes to Reformed doctrine is the L in tulip. Yeah. Which refers to limited atonement. So you've got tulip. You've got the the five aspects of what we call Calvinism, usually shorthand for Reformed doctrine. Total depravity is the T. Unconditional election is the U. Limited atonement, or we might use the phrase particular atonement today. Particular But I don't know yeah. any... I don't know any flowers that are spelled that way. Yeah. Uh, it's almost I, like you could probably do like turnip, maybe. A redemption particular. I don't know. <laughs> Some, somewhere in there. <laughs> you, you do You do it. Man. I'm going to have to you, rearrange this. You just d- start sketching that those flowers. Yeah. I'm going to have to figure. <laughs> so the I Nobody is likes just turnips. grace. And the P is the perseverance of the saints. So the effectual, the predestination, the effectual calling, the limited efficiency, the uh, calling that man cannot deny, the regeneration, the raising of mankind from the dead spiritually, 
and the security of the saints, the perseverance, the uh, the sealed state of the saints uh, mm-hmm. until they are glorified in heaven forever. That's reformed uh, doctrine in a, in, a, in a real brief nutshell. Limited atonement is that one that says, and I'll see if you have a better definition for us, limited atonement is that one which says when Christ came to die, he, ca- he died to save the elect. Mm-hmm. He died to redeem those whom God had predestined, those whom God had uh, unconditionally uh, called to himself, and those whom he intended to, by his grace, save in the end forever. And yeah. that uh, the common phrase, I saw it again this morning, is it was efficient, uh, sufficient for all, but efficient for some or for many, uh, for those who believe. So that the blood of Jesus Christ uh, did not effectively, in efficiency, pay for everyone's sin. It was not applied to every person's sin. Instead, it was applied to the people of God, the chosen, the redeemed. Yeah. And that is a doctrine of great con- a great controversy. A lot of ink has been spilt, a lot of late-night discussions, um, a lot of anger, I'm sure, has risen over the years over this discussion. Um, a lot of objections to this about fairness and biblical interpretation and... Um. Yeah. So, bringing bringing that up, what would you say is really the main question that we ought to be trying to answer first when it comes to the doctrine of limited atonement or particular atonement? I think particular is probably a better word. Limited makes it sound like um, God's held back somehow, or uh, the blood was applied, but it could only go so far that there was somehow an insufficiency in the quality, the nature, the reach, the power of Jesus on the cross, uh, which would be heretical uh, to believe. So particular atonement, what's the main question that we need to ask? I mean, what, what do you think is the most important question to really wrestle with first on this? Well, I think the whole, the whole thing is really getting at um, how, when Christ died— what did he actually accomplish there mm-hmm. is the main thing that this doctrine is trying to address. And the people that push back against it are uh, are answering that question a different way. Um, so, so the question is, when Christ died, did he purchase uh, salvation for people and secure it there it was finished when he says it is finished is that what he means or did he purchase savability meaning now it is possible for people to be saved and the people who are fall under the camp of particular redemption limited atonement would say no there was a finite number of people that he secured salvation for there on the cross. In other words, God took the wrath that he had towards me and you and let's say toward 
the Apostle Paul, let's say toward, you know, let's pick some people that are dead, Martin Luther toward John Owen, you know, mm-hmm. and and he poured out his wrath on them or for, toward them on Christ. And when John Owen, who lives 1,600 years post-Christ, is born, comes to salvation, dies, stands before the judgment seat of God. God has no wrath for him because Christ took that 2,000 years ago. So before John Owen was ever born or ever even thought of, Jesus absorbed all the wrath God had toward him so that when he stands before God on judgment day, there is no wrath to give. Hell is not a possibility for him because Christ has essentially uh, absorbed all the wrath for him. But the since there are, the logic goes, since there are people in hell, there is obviously group, hordes of people for which that's not true. Um, I think there, there's a the on the other side of that, the who would say who would advocate for unlimited atonement, which is the exact opposite, would point to passages in Scripture, and we haven't dealt with the Scripture that supports limited atonement yet. But they would point to passages of Scripture, and I think probably one of the there's there's many out there, but uh, I think one of that's probably the most clear that we could work with is um, 1 Timothy 4.10, which says, um, I'll read the whole thing, but mm-hmm. only part of it is is particular for our, our discussion. But it says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Um, so... I actually think both sides could use this verse to support what they're saying, but but I think more commonly the unlimited atonement camp um, has taken this verse and saying and said God is the savior of all people in Christ, um, and so and He is especially so to those who believe. So they would say the atonement is unlimited. What is what is uh, up in the air is whether or not the person, you know, floating in the in the ocean reaches out and grabs the life preserver. And the ones that grab the life preserver, the atonement is then applied to their account. So so you have people so let's take a you know, John Owen, same example. John Owen at I don't know when he came to salvation or when he professed faith in Christ or whatever, but let's say he's 15 years old and he hears the gospel preached and he says, you know, oh, wow, I believe that. And, uh, and I repent of my sins. That's him reaching out. I want to follow you. Jesus reaches out and grabs the life preserver. At that point, the unlimited atonement camp would say the atonement, the wrath of God being satisfied was applied to him there. And, um, and so, you know he is redeemed. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's basically what Christ died for was a savability. It John Owen now has the ability 
to reach out and grab the life preserver where he didn't have it before. That's what Christ secured. Um, whereas the limited atonement would say, no, his salvation was secured, and he came to knowledge of that salvation at some point in his life that God determined, but but it was already secured for him before the foundation of the world, before when Christ died. Right. And I would say, yeah, that and that is the, I mean, if you go to um, Greg Olson, uh, one of the foremost uh, Arminians of today, that that is the Arminian position, that the Holy Spirit awakens you, we would call it semi-Pelagianism, awakens you to a new, renewed state where you are free again to make a new choice. And you can quench the Spirit, you can reject the Spirit, um, but you don't have to. You don't, you don't have to accept Jesus. You're just enabled to. And, um, yeah, I'm not seeing that line. Tom Schreiner does a good job. He actually says in that First Timothy 4.10 section that you have to, the word especially probably actually means especially and and not something more akin to limited atonement but that the context itself is suggesting he can't be meaning uh what we would call arminianism because uh, otherwise he'd be saying universalism especially those who believe everyone is saved especially christians well that's obviously not what he's saying context right. says that the rest of the New Testament says that so the limited atonement is in the in the context itself so um, right. where, where do we see this in scripture I mean is this I mean is this really is this kind of like the Trinity where like you know well we know this is true and this is true and this is true so we kind of have to say that this is true and there's not a there's not a verse that is uh, that uses the word trinity. We don't have verses that use the words limited atonement. So where do we begin to see this in Scripture? I mean, is this like a New Uh, Testament kind of index, kind of, well, yeah, this is kind of what we believe, or is this something to celebrate? I mean, because if this is true, then this ought to really matter and not be like something that we're, like, afraid of. You know, like, oh, do you believe in limited atonement? Well, it depends. Do you? Like, I don't want to tell you because I don't, I don't know if you're going to like me or not afterwards. You're going to think I'm, you know, one of those crazy, snarky Calvinists. If it's true, I'll celebrate it. I'll be able to find it and defend it and love it and not be afraid of it. You know, people have asked me over the years if I believe in limited atonement. <laughs> I've always... Uh, just to kind of give them a you know kind of an inch back to the middle i'll always say well yeah six days a week <laughs> like there's I, I have questions i wonder like everyone else uh but yeah i i'm i believe in that that doctrine the ideal of limited atonement in scripture so we shouldn't hide from it if it's there where where do we begin to see it in the bible where, where does it come to the surface as as true um so th- there's I think there's there are several places where you get the sense of a limitation um, in the salvation in the in the um, the salvation that that stemmed from the cross. Um, you know what comes to mind is like Romans five, where Paul is pretty careful to call out the many that um, the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Um, I, I think of Isaiah 53, 
where um, he is pretty careful to say um, that, you know, I guess I could I could read it, but he says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. Uh, he has put him to grief when his soul makes um, an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish. Uh, of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities um so i wouldn't necessarily say that it's quite like the trinity in the sense that we get um you know we get that that kind of uh, logical deduction from several Mm -hmm. different doctrines that are necessarily true that come together to make this, you know, one doctrine that we sort of uh, put a moniker on. Certainly we won't see the the words, you know, particular redemption or limited atonement. Um, certainly you won't see those words in Scripture put quite that way. But you will see the prophecies about what Jesus is going to do, the statements about what Jesus is going to do, um, dying for the many uh, out there. And so basically limited atonement and in particular redemption is just kind of just putting a name on that. That being said, I think that it, the unlimited atonement guy who I'm kind of saying is sitting next to me, you know, mm-hmm. would probably say, but, but there's like your first Timothy 410, he's the savior for all people and things like that. Um, in some, so in some sense, I think there is warrant in scripture to say that is what that is saying, that he died for the many. And that is particular in that sense. And it's not saying that he died in the same way for all. But there is also another sense where particular redemption has to be true based on all the other things that we see in Scripture. Um, and, and I think the clearest example of that or the, the clearest deduction of that is actually what the blood of Christ secures. Um, so you know, we have this promise in the Old Testament, uh, coming from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, um, 32, 39 to 30, 41, Ezekiel, I think 11, um, uh, yeah, 11, 19, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And I'll, I'll read some of these to kind of see what like if we're looking at the from the old testament what god is going to do so he's he's kind of looking into the future and saying all the all the children of israel going into exile they're being punished mm-hmm. for their sin and their rebellion and their disobedience to the law and so god is is through the prophets you know looking into the future and saying this is what i'm going to do okay it's not always going to be this way so as an example of that jeremiah 31 31 to 34 The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins, their sin no more. 
um, 32, 39 to 41. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me on in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Uh, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 36, 26 to 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Um, and this is, goes all the way back even to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The point is that what is is told all the way as far back as Deuteronomy, all the way through the prophets, is that coming in the, the new covenant is something that God will do. So here's the old covenant, and here's the reason why it failed. The law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, And in addition to that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, on these hang the whole law. Basically, the whole Old Testament hangs on these two. Right. Mm-hmm. So God puts this commandment in front of them, do this, and they can't do it. And so, and, and the Old Testament bears that out. They can't fulfill it. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, he, he then says the new covenant is going to be different. The new covenant, I'm actually going to replace your heart. I'm going to do the work. Instead of me putting the onus on you, the individual, mm-hmm. I'm going and, and proving you can't do it because you're fallen. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take out the old heart and I'm going to put in the new heart. And that is going to enable you to obey. Mm-hmm. And so you understand then that the, in the new covenant, the difference is it is not contingent on faith, right? The new, whereas the old was contingent on your belief. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It, it was contingent on his faith. In the new covenant, it is not contingent on faith that isn't a precursor for the new covenant to be secured so what happens then is that in the last supper jesus sits down with his disciples and he says this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood um meaning that he because as hebrew seven twenty two says he becomes the guarantor of a better covenant or 915 he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inherit eternal inheritance so essentially what he what he's saying is that the promise of the new covenant god changing your heart god doing heart surgery on you is secured in my blood mm-hmm. so if we go back to this sort of life preserver you know, thought, which is not true, but let's let's just 
do a thought experiment. Let's say the life preserver thing, God throws the life preserver out there, you're floating in the water. That that uh, whole premise is the the heart procedure that enables you to even respond in faith by taking the life preserver is secured by Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. So the particular redemption or limited atonement would would make the argument from that and say that is not true of everyone. Mm-hmm. Not everyone responds in faith. Mm-hmm. And if not everyone responds in faith, the faith that it took to latch on to the life preserver. Now, again, I reject that whole premise of we're floating, obviously. Uh, Paul says we're dead in our trespassing sins, but let's just, as a thought experiment, say that's true. The very ability to reach out and grab that life preserver is the particularity, is the limitation in the atonement. Mm -hmm. It was limited in that sense that only certain people would reach out and grab that life preserver. And those people are the ones that that the blood of the new covenant secures, which enables the promise of the new covenant back in the Old Testament that God's going to swap out their heart. So Jesus dies on the cross, and in that act secured God swapping out the heart of stone for the heart of flesh in particular people, and in time they reach out and grab that life preserver or they they say yes to Jesus, um, you know, in the future, and that's not true of everyone. Right. Not everyone does that. So to and summarize, that, I mean, yeah. you've you've basically just said if you if you're going to be particular in your understanding of regeneration, you're not a universalist in terms right. of those who are spiritually awakened. Right. Then it's only a logical conclusion to make sense that. Jesus died for those who are actually regenerate. Otherwise, you're going to have to say somehow everyone is saved or everyone is receiving the the new covenant. Everyone is a participant of the new covenant. Right. So, so when you connect those dots that this is what Jesus has done, then other things start uh, other statements that he makes start to become very clear, and you start to understand them in light of the connections we've just made in the new covenant being secured, in the new covenant securing those promises from the Old Testament that God's going to do the heart the heart procedure. So, so essentially, we're saying all of the action then of salvation is on God. The Old Testament has proven that if salvation is on man, it's impossible. You can't you can't you can't be righteous enough. You can't be you can't save yourself. Mm-hmm. So all of the salvation is and the act of salvation is thrust on on the Lord, as it always was, really, but that that he is the one that has to do the heart procedure. Christ secures that in his blood. He mm-hmm. only obviously redeems some. Then the statements of Jesus when he says, like in John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep, mm-hmm. he, he, he's saying right there, he, he doesn't say, I, I'm laying down my life in the same way for everyone. 
Mm-hmm. He's saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. And he'll even say later on, there are many others that are not of this sheep pen, you know, that are not that, that are not in this pen that are that are also mine. Mm-hmm. But then um, you have two statements that he makes in his in earlier in John, John six, when he's talking to the disciples. He says, he says uh, in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So you have a scenario where he says, no one can come to me. The only way they can come is if the Father draws them, and I will raise them up. But if you back up just a few verses in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, no one can come unless the Father draws them. All that the Father draws will come. And whoever comes, I will not cast out. I will raise him up on the last day. So this particular redemption or limited atonement is tied very closely to irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. Where you have God being the actor in all of this. Whereas total depravity unconditional election those are a lot more focused on on us we are totally depraved there's nothing that we did to earn god's favor or anything like that whereas you get to limited atonement in in irresistible grace um those are focused on god's act in saving that we're saying the the one who does the deciding the one who does the choosing, the one who, who, name it, is God. He's the mm-hmm. principal actor in all of this. And that's what we're saying is what the Bible is laying out as the very foundation of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Jesus is, God is saying in, in the Old Testament, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the principal actor here. Mm-hmm. Jesus is saying, I'm going to secure God being the principal actor in my blood. So he secured it. And then in God being the principal actor, he overcomes, this is the irresistible grace part, he overcomes the obstinacy, the natural obstinacy that we share with our Old Testament brethren. He overcomes that obstinacy and and brings us to Christ in salvation. So those two go hand in hand. You can't really separate the two. And mm-hmm. and so if we're saying about the atonement that he secured something there on the cross, that he actually accomplished something, and what he says he accomplished was the new covenant, then you can't you can't bifurcate, you can't separate limited atonement and irresistible grace. They go hand in hand together. Right. You you can barely even talk about one without talking about the other. Right. Yeah, and it goes it goes back to the sovereignty of God and his choice in election. And I think you see that beginning with the whole idea of Israel to begin with. You go back to Deuteronomy, God looks at his people and says, you weren't better than anyone else, you weren't richer, you weren't more beautiful, right. you weren't more powerful, you weren't there weren't more more of you than all the other nations. I simply put my love on you 
and made a covenant with you because that's what I chose to do right? Uh, for my own glory. And then when you get to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, just to put everything in the Old Testament context even, it's not like things changed. When, when the high priest goes in once a year to make atonement for the people, he goes in to make atonement for Israel. Right. It's, the nations aren't saved. Right. And, and then you can't, you know, tying into your covenant aspect, like you can't get into that atonement unless you get into the people through faith and through circumcision and through, uh, through the law and through uh, coming, you know, saying that Yahweh is your God. That atonement doesn't apply to everyone in the whole world. It applies to those who are who are when that blood is shed, and that lamb's blood is spilt. We go back. We we just find it everywhere. You go Moses, in 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 Pharaoh, and you have the blood. Where it, if the blood is on your doorpost, right? Then then you'll be saved. And and who was that offered to? It wasn't even offered to Egypt. It was it was commanded. And expected from his people so that they would be saved. And the, the whole point wasn't, well, you know, Israel, if you guys, every, every, every Israelite has a choice today. They can be saved or they can die. Well, perhaps. Were there Israelites who died in Egypt because they didn't put the blood over their doorpost? Perhaps. But it doesn't say. I don't think it tells us at all. The main point of that passage was God is providing blood for his people. He is saving his people from death, and he is giving Pharaoh and his people over to ruin the death of their firstborn sons because they refuse to acknowledge Yahweh and let his people go. So the, the division between peoples, it's not even a New Testament Calvinistic, how are people saved idea. Right. It's God has been doing this through the whole Bible. Yeah. And I just think it brings up the, the, the thing that I think people— what really leads us to have a hard time with this doctrine is basically it comes down to we don't think it's fair. Yeah. Oh, we absolutely. We don't think it's fair. We God can't do that. God God can't choose not to save me. I have right. I have a right to salvation. I have a, a right to choose or reject God. And when you when we begin to talk like that, we have already abandoned or we haven't gotten to the doctrine of depravity and what right. it means to be a, a, a sinner and dead in our sins, a nature of sin, uh, to be damned in every way. Having sinned, the nature of sin, having the, the progeny of a sinful nature. We, so when you get there, you realize everything God does at any point in time with anyone is absolutely only by His grace. No one, no one has ever earned their salvation from God. None right. of us have any right to be saved whatsoever. Right. So if God chooses in his sovereignty and his wisdom to come into creation and choose a people and save them, and after choosing them, make atonement for their sin so that they can live with him in fellowship, that's God's prerogative. God's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Right. So when it when it comes I just feel like that that is most often the real rub. Absolutely. It, is it's it's not even about well this scripture says. Right? And yeah. and there there are real biblical questions to ask here in the New Testament. 
Yeah. I think the most common objection of it's, it's just not fair. Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, and and um, I th- I think you know that goes all the way back to the necessity, and I I think, and I'm I'm convinced. I've said this a number of times that if you're looking at tulip, the T in tulip is fundamental to understanding everything else. Mm-hmm. If you cannot grasp that we are all condemned to die, rightfully mm-hmm. so, then you, there, none of this will make any sense. Mm-hmm. The whole Bible will not make any sense. Well, you know, the question, how could a loving God, you know, send people to hell? That whole, that whole premise of that question doesn't understand total depravity. Yeah, and it doesn't the, understand God's justice. How right. how could a just God just not not <laughs> right? I mean, exactly. It is. It's overwhelming when you come to realize how undeserving right we are to exist. Yeah, we don't even we don't even deserve our own existence. Yeah, there, there's nothing that we can hold against God and say, "Well, you owe us our our, our life." Our, our breath, our our what, our eternity, our dignity. What? No, we've we ruined it all with sin. All of us from Adam forward. Yeah. And if we can get to that place where we realize, if God doesn't step in and come back to the garden and do something with Adam, it's over then. Right. And if God doesn't save Noah, it's over. Right. The earth is filled with violence. God just floods the earth. Yeah. And, and if God doesn't do something with Abraham, and then David, and then Christ, and if God if God doesn't do something, then we're all going to get what we absolutely deserve. There are none who are righteous. There are none who are good. No, not one. Right. We have all uh, fallen short of the glory of God, and we all deserve the wages for our sin, which is death. I want to circle back to to something you were talking about a minute ago that I think is really helpful for understanding a lot of the New Testament texts where it seems like, like we talked about with 1 Timothy 4.10, the Savior of all people, especially those who believe, um, and what's going on in a lot of these texts. There's several of them out there um, that I think are this particular thing that you've been talking about is, is really important to understand, that in the Old Testament, had you and I lived in an Old Testament era Mm-hmm. We would have grown up worshiping Molech and whoever, whatever mm-hmm. pagan god, because we're Gentiles, mm-hmm. and we would have, uh, you know, died without mm-hmm. any, probably, maybe even never even hearing of the Jews and never mm-hmm. even hearing of the temple and God and much less being a proselyte and coming to Judaism in the temple. And so um, a, a lot of these texts where died for the whole world or uh, the savior of all people, you have to understand that he's broadening out salvation to say God is declaring himself in Christ, not just the God of the Jews, but the God of everyone. And there is no way anyone can be saved by any other means other than Jesus. So he is the savior for the whole world, mm-hmm. right? In that sense. Mm-hmm. 
But then he says, especially those who believe, means that his salvation is applied to those who believe, Mm -hmm. which we've already said the believing comes as a result of the securing in the new covenant. So, um, so I think it's it's helpful to understand that as we get to the New Testament, that's what they're talking about. That, and you'll see this several times that he becomes the savior of all people, um, not meaning every single person, but all peoples, like the, all all the nation. Like he he has ransomed people from every tribe and language and nation, right? Not not. He is the savior of every tribe, but he had and every person in every tribe. But he has ransomed people from every tribe. Mm-hmm. In that sense, he's the savior of all it, all people. And again, you begin to realize the idea of limited atonement isn't just an idea about efficiency and sufficiency, right? And did he die this to save people, or so that people could be saved? The, the tentacles of limited atonement are in who, what does it mean to be Israel? Right. The question gets answered in, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Who, mm-hmm. who, is, uh, who is Israel? Right? Mm-hmm. Is it the, 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 the children of you know, Isaac by, by blood and progeny and flesh? Or is it the children of promise, the children of faith? What, is, what does it mean to actually be Israel? Because Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are Israel are Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that idea of particular redemption is even wrapped up. If, if, we, if we see that it's true, we can't go back and go, well, God's not fair. God didn't save the whole world. He just saved Israel in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. He just saved Israel when he chose them. And just saved Israel instead of saving Egypt, and that—that—that's that, God can't do that. That's not what God does. Well, He's been doing it, and now in the New Testament, we have to answer the question: Who is Israel now? Who is God's people? And when when did they become God's people? How did they become God's people? And so the the doctrines, you're basically going to make the the your decision about limited atonement way back when you make a decision about election and regeneration. Mm-hmm. When you make those decisions, you're, you're already tapped into a vein of what does it mean to be God's people from Genesis up to Christ and going into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And then you begin, to, you begin to see a similar application of atonement. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you can look back. I, I think one of the, probably the, for, for me, the, the best argument for an Arminian ideal would be that even in Israel, not all who were Israel were Israel. Mm-hmm. So there were some, right, for whom the blood Korah. was shed in Israel. Huh? Korah. Korah, for example, Achan. I was reading Achan this week. That yeah. brother did not seem to be a man of faith. No. Uh, <laughs> he and his entire family were destroyed. And I, but I'm, right. even, I'm even reading through Joshua. And just seeing how God is just running through annihilating everyone in the promised land. That's his goal, right. to clear out all the people. I mean, Jesus seems to make this argument about the Pharisees and Sadducees, many of them. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, so the, the, the idea is there that God would do it. Now, the, the uh, opposition that I was getting is that you, you could say there's an idea in the Old Testament that even among Israel, and this goes back to really Romans chapter 4, 
that why was Abraham saved? Because of faith. He was saved by faith, not by works. There's a difference between answering the question, are we saved by faith or works, and you say faith, and then saying, well, are we saved by faith or regeneration, and realizing those things are not mutually exclusive. You Mm -hmm. can't do one or the other. You can't say mm-hmm. that you're saved by faith or regeneration. Mm-hmm. You are saved by faith through regeneration. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're together. One, right. one doesn't exist without the other one. Yeah. But looking back or to the Old Testament. Or saved by regeneration through faith. Yeah. Right. So um, you, you could say that, you know, there are people within Israel who weren't saved. You know, so it's only those who chose to have faith among Israel, for whom the blood actually did something to to save them, um, I think that would that would be probably the the most helpful discussion to have. Was what does mm-hmm. that mean? And then you answer that question for us today, at least when you come to the new covenant mm-hmm. and what it means to actually be circumcised of the heart. Yeah, where God actually says, "Yeah, I agree. That's a problem." <laughs> uh, the the blood. Is spilled. You actually, you you have perhaps, and I haven't read I haven't read this, so tell me if I sound crazy. You have perhaps an unparticular atonement in atonement, particularly offered to the Israelites, where you could be uncircumcised of heart. You could be in Israel. You could be an Israelite, but without faith, that blood doesn't apply to you. But in mm. the New Testament, that's different. Everyone who's in the new covenant is already circumcised of heart. That's what it means to be in the new yeah. covenant. Does that make, does that well, make sense? I th- or am I just talking crazy? No, um, I think if I'm tracking with what you're saying, um, Jim Hamilton actually talks a little bit about this in a book that he wrote called God's Indwelling Presence, the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments, um, where he deals with new birth and um, and all of the concepts that, uh, that flow from that, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. That where he where he talks about the Old Testament brothers, and I think it's on like page forty six. I've got it up here. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know you were necessarily going to go there, so it's taking me a second to find it. But um, basically, what he's saying here is, uh, if I'm tracking with his argument, it's that. Um, the Old Testament saints, some of them, let's let's take Moses, for example, Moses, or, or Abraham. Abraham would be a better one, probably, because it specifically says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham, because he was not in under the new covenant, did not have the spirit indwelling him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the promises of the new covenant, I will write my law in their hearts, I will, you know, you know, give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, mm-hmm. um, that that was not obviously for Abraham because he was in the old, he was under the old covenant, but he still did have eyes of faith, mm-hmm. like he still believed. And I think the best way to look at Abraham, Moses, Old Testament figures is to go to, ironically, the New Testament before Christ dies and secures the new covenant in his blood Peter says to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So there is a category of faith that where the person 
who still falls under the old covenant has eyes of faith opened for them by the Spirit. So the Spirit still gives them the eyes of faith to see the truth of God's salvation, yet still having an old heart, right? Mm -hmm. So this would be true of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, uh, you know, Moses, David. This would be true Mm -hmm. of any of the Old Testament, um, what we call them believers, people that we will meet in heaven, Mm -hmm. um, would still be looking forward to the promises fulfilled, still have their eyes opened by the Spirit. And I think you can see this in First and Second Samuel where the Spirit rushes on Saul and he had, he prophesies. The Spirit leaves him. A lying spirit comes in and he's confused. And, and, and I think you, you can kind of see that, that relationship being played out in First and Second Samuel, First and mm-hmm. Second Kings, um, where this is kind of clearly, you know, elucidated for us that the spirit comes on people opens their eyes for the truth of god's salvation the truth of um of of you know uh, of you might say christ the truth the truth of 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 god and they are able to see and believe and i think we see that in peter in the in the new testament but then the new testament secures it as a permanent indwelling of the holy spirit swapping out of the old heart for the new yeah yeah, I mentioned earlier. I was uh, when we said we were going to talk about this. I, I looked around for a podcast for um, R.C. Sproul just to see if I could listen <laughs> to him for a minute, and just get some terms he used. <laughs> and I found this podcast, and I thought, oh, this is great. It's it's called Limited Atonement by R.C. Sproul. Uh, I'm going to listen to this for a while while I do some other things. And the whole thing was four minutes long, and it <laughs> it basically came down to R.C. Sproul going, "Well, I'm not a universalist." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, God, it, you know the effective for some, sufficient for all, is there just going? What well, you? What are you going to say G- that yeah. Jesus doesn't save everyone? Yeah, His blood doesn't apply to everyone the same way. Right, and so it's not like no one. It's either universalism or some understanding of particular application. Of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it, it it has to be one of those two things. Yeah, and you you I really that guy. can't be Christian and universalist. Yeah. You agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big problem. Yeah, and I think, um, but you and you, I don't think there's going to be a Christian. Well, no, let me back up. Uh, I I think that your average person who is right now not agreeing with limited atonement I think would also not agree with universalism. Okay? I think I think your average person. Now I'm sure there's people out there that make all kinds of different arguments and I know there are and we've read them and yada yada. But I'm not dealing with them because that's not I don't think the vast majority of people I think most people in your churches and stuff like that that are are hearing limited atonement and like, I don't agree with that, I don't think they would say also on the other side, well, everyone's going to be saved and that there is no hell. Uh, I don't think they would say that at all. Even if they would say Hitler is in hell, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. hell's reserved for, you know, that kind of, Okay. So I don't think most people would would 
uh, say that. But where you'll see it come up a lot is when you go, okay, let's take that guy, that mythical guy that we're making up, that's out in the middle of the bush of Africa or somewhere where the gospel has not really reached, you know, Iran, North Korea, and and he never hears the gospel, never never hears a word breathed about the gospel, doesn't know anything about Jesus, never heard anything about Jesus. Uh, what happens to him? And you will frequently hear people who struggle over limited atonement, who struggle over some of these doctrines of grace, will waffle as to the answer to what happens to that guy. And they'll say, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. The answer is he's in hell. Mm-hmm. That's the answer. That's the answer the Bible gives. He's in hell. Mm-hmm. And the the recoil, I think, from people that push back against limited atonement, the commoner, the co- common person that would push back against limited atonement, would feel like what you were saying earlier. That's not fair. That that guy that never heard the gospel is in hell. But you understand millions upon millions upon billions of people throughout for the last 2,000 years, and if you want to go back to the Old Testament, even longer, have died without ever hearing of God's salvation, ever. And they went to hell. So at some point, just in practical terms, we have to wrestle with, wait a minute, God's redemption has always been particular, which is what you were saying earlier. God's redemption has always been particular. It's never been unlimited, mm-hmm. ever, in the history of the world. It's it's never been universal. And, and even now, there are billions of people that die all the time that never hear a word breathed about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they go to hell. Mm-hmm. And sure, that's an impetus for you to go share the gospel. I, I, I can agree with our Arminian brothers and sisters that that, that is an impetus for, to share and to uh, say, which probably another episode we need to talk about is the need for evangelism and how we deal with evangelism mm-hmm. and being Calvinist. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a very good thing we should probably talk about. But um, but I think while it's an impetus for, to share the gospel, we also have to agree that people die without ever hearing a word breathed about Christ and they are in hell mm-hmm. as a result. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense in which the blood of Jesus applied to them or ever had the chance to apply to them. So either we believe God is sitting in heaven going, yeah, I saw that guy out there in North Korea. I just either I didn't really care to get the gospel to him I didn't care to move people to get the gospel to him, uh, or I couldn't get the gospel to him, or something. I, I, you know, at some point we're gonna have to say, God, where you at with this guy, right? Unless we actually acknowledge that his redemption is particular, and it applies to his people, and he will get the gospel to them, and they will believe because. Mm. He, he draws, and only those he draws come to Jesus, and everyone he draws comes. 
Mm-hmm. So in that case, the gospel that's preached to the world, the ones who do believe are the ones he draws. Mm-hmm. And it's his decision. Mm-hmm. And we just have to be okay with that. I think it, it brings up a question that we have that is being revealed and how we feel about those things. And it's what is God's greatest purpose on earth? And we tend to think that God's greatest purpose is so man-centric. Yeah. That we think God's to greatest purpose is to save yeah. As yeah. many people right. as he could. Right. And that's his only goal. Right. He he has set out everyone's loss. I'm going to go save as many as I can, and I just can't save them all. Right. Is that it? Is right. God just kind of got his hands right. tied behind his back? He couldn't He couldn't redeem all yeah. of mankind? Well, and he says, he says in the Old Testament, that's not even why I redeemed you, Israel. Mm-hmm. I redeemed you to make my name great. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, he's, He's up front from the get-go. I created you for my glory, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Yeah. So he has de- he has defined what his greatest purpose is in the Bible, saying it is for my glory. Now, our thinking sometimes goes, well, wouldn't it be more glorious for him if everyone came to salvation? To which we have to say, obviously not. Mm-hmm. If he's if he's all powerful, mm-hmm. he's om, he's omniscient, omnipotent, omniscient. Um, then we would have to say, what he does is what's best for his glory. If mm-hmm. that's his ultimate goal, mm-hmm. right? If we believe all those things are are true, then whatever he accomplishes is what's best for his, best to achieve his his glory in the mm-hmm. end. Because he's going to accomplish that purpose. Mm-hmm. So that means that his judgment of the wicked and sending them to hell is also accomplishing his glory and is what's best for his glory. And he receives glory from that. Mm-hmm. And, and in saving out of reprobate humanity some for his purposes— is also what's best for his glory. And and as Paul argues in Romans 9, doesn't the potter have the right to say over the clay, I made you for this purpose? Yeah, that that passage is haunting in a, in a Absolutely. holy way. Absolutely. I, I just had it pulled up. I was going to read it. So yeah. it, it begins with God has compassion on whom he will have compassion. Not all who are Israel are Israel, as we explained. Then he says, but you, you will say to me, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist God's will? How, how can God still find fault with sinners if they can't resu- resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will, the, will, its, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the mm-hmm. potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And then Paul asked a rhetorical question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known 
the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. I mean, that ought to just make, that ought to shut our mouths. Yep. And cause us to tremble at the holy sovereignty of God's absolute freedom. Right. With his creation. Right. He has no no moral um, ought to us. Right. Because of our sinfulness toward him. Right. Uh, it, it, I mean, once you get there, and once you let that, I mean, just make Romans nine nineteen through twenty three your memory verse for two weeks, and see right. just see what it does to your heart, right? And your questions about about fairness and who God is, what God does, why He does it that way. I mean, there there is a lot of celebration of grace once you begin to let. Uh, God's freedom be over and above our freedom, even in our most yeah. righteous state, much less our condemned sinful state. Yeah. Um, there's a book by John Piper called Finally Alive, mm-hmm. which um, basically the subtitle is What Happens When We Are Born Again. It's a pretty mm-hmm. short little book, I think. I have it digitally, so I don't know exactly how big it is, but... Mm-hmm. Um, um, he gives. He starts off the book with three reasons why Jesus is teaching about new birth, um, which I would tie to irresistible grace, which I would tie to limited atonement. Um, why he's teaching about new birth, it makes us uneasy. And he starts off the book with three reasons why, why he, he feels like that makes us uneasy. He says, first, Jesus' teaching about new birth confronts us with our hopeless spiritual and moral and legal condition apart from God's regenerating grace. Mm. Before new, the new birth happens to us, we're spiritually dead. We're morally mm. selfish and rebellious, and we're legally guilty before God's law and under his wrath. Second, the teaching about the new birth is unsettling because it refers to something that is done to us, not something we do. It refers to the children of God as those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God causes the new birth. We don't. Um, so then he says the third reason Jesus' is teaching about the new birth is unsettling, therefore, is that it confronts us with the absolute freedom of God. Hmm. Apart from God, we are spiritually dead in our selfishness and rebellion. We are by nature children of wrath. Our rebellion is so deep that we cannot detect or desire the glory of Christ in the gospel. Therefore, if we are going to be born again, it will rely decisively and ultimately on God. His decision to make us alive will not be a response to what we as as spiritual corpses do, but what we do will be a response to his making us alive. For most people, at least at first, this is unsettling. Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. 
Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast.